Welcome to Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recordomics Consulting. We've helped over 75 biotech, life science, and venture capital firms strategize, hire, and retain thousands of employees to scale companies that bring life-saving drugs to patients. We speak with those at the forefront of growing biotechs to learn their tactics on building these companies from the ground floor to the C-suite. We're your host, Karina and Allison. So we did it. We found the person who has the answer to our communication question and why communication is so hard. Absolutely. And she has a framework that you can download after the episode as well. So check out our show notes for that. So this person is Lynn Walder. She has been in this biotech startup world for over 20 years. She has worked for large companies, small companies. She worked at Vertex. She worked at Pharma Therapeutics. And she really, truly is the person who is hands-on doing the business strategy for these companies. Lynn is currently at Lab Central, and she has her own firm as well, where she consults with founders, CEOs, and just handles all the many things. So this is a great episode. I hope you enjoy. All right. So Lynn, what did you want to be when you were seven, and what are you now, and how did you get there? That's a really complicated question, and so I'm going to try to make this as short as possible because I am definitely have been a career meanderer through much of my life, starting at age 13, so we're not going to go back that far. I know you asked age seven, and it did force me to think a little bit because I think I wanted to be an astronaut when I was nine, but then I said, oh, seven? I remember now. I actually wanted to be an astronomer, and the reason is, is I actually had a telescope that was given to me for Christmas that year. And being exposed to kind of just being able to look at all the planets, particularly like the details of the moon, I really was overcome with awe, even at that young of an age. And of course, you start getting older and you kind of like fall into the practicality of day-to-day responsibilities. And you forget some of that awe when you're a child. But there's a beautiful kind of circle I feel that's come back from this question when I was thinking about it is that my life has kind of opened up and gone from that practical nature into the conjunction of both practical and I would say looking into the awe-inspiring ethereal and and trying to cross-section that, as I like to say, cross-section spirituality and science. And so that basically is kind of what I wanted to be when I was seven. How did that lead into all of the rest of what I've done over the past, God, 25 years is coming down to let's go towards me in my 20s. I think that's probably the next good place because I did work from age 13 all the way up until I was in college. I was a career lost soul and so lost that I just didn't really want to work and I became a volunteer addict. That's really what it came down to. And I was married at the time and my husband had started a lifestyle business when he was in college and it was called undergroundhiphop.com. And I was helping him operationally start, launch, and grow his business. And so I wrote his business plan. I was helping with operations management. I was working on HR, helping him through all those kinds of things while he just wanted to focus on the fun stuff, which was the music, right? So I helped him through that, but I realized I was actually really good at a lot of things and not really exceptional at one thing. And when you're married to somebody that is literally living their dream of a hobby that turned into a business you start getting pretty upset with yourself. So Q quarter life crisis, where I was like dedicating all of my time to, you know, volunteering and trying to change the world. And I said, oof, I really need to start helping pay the bills. And my husband says, well, why don't you just go work in nonprofit? And I said, oh, I never even thought about that. So I would say my first real foray into committed, happy, joyful work was I took on a nonprofit role as an operations manager at a very small nonprofit called Tenacity, which they worked in the cross-section of tennis training, literacy, and life skills for inner city students in middle schools. And then they did extend into high school. And it was such a wonderful eye-opening experience. And I literally was with my peoples. I was so happy and so joyful doing the work I was doing every day. I said, I never want to leave nonprofit. And then I had a child. And I realized, oh, I can't pay my bills working in nonprofit when I'm raising a family. So I needed to find something that was more stable, more sustainable, and longer term. And so I started exploring what are the industries in Boston that would would support me and our growing family. And it came down to three industries for me. Higher ed academia, venture capital, because that's where the money is, (laughs) and biotech. And I knew nothing about any of those 
industries. And so one by one, I started exploring. I went and looked at academia and I realized, ooh, okay, this is probably still not as higher pay as I need uh, to fill the gap of what I need right now. And it was actually quite slow moving. And I'm a really fast paced individual. And I realized that through some of my other previous roles in other industries that I had worked in. So I kind of put academia to the side. Then I looked at venture capital. And while I really enjoyed the interactions of meeting the people that run venture capital firms, and I knew it would be a challenging environment from a learning perspective, I realized fairly quickly that the actual environment of VCs, they actually don't grow their own organization. They grow portfolio companies outside of their organization. And one thing for me is that I need to be seeing that I'm having immediate impact on the growth of anything that I'm putting my time, energy, and efforts to. So I even had a job offer over at Waltham and I had to rescind it because I was like, I'm going to falter like a wilting flower here. It's not going to work. So I knew who I was and what I needed. And then came the introduction to biotech. I had an interview over at Vertex Pharmaceuticals to be an administrative assistant in the HR department. And again, no real previous intro to biotech. I know nothing about science. I'm horrible at math. So I never went down that. I'm like an English writer, creative, that kind of stuff. I can be strategic, but again, I think more in conceptual ways. And so after an intense round of interviews, I got hired at Vertex. And I like to say I was there during their golden years. It was when they were actually launching their first two drugs. And we were building out in a very hyper growth environment. It was, I feel like a little entrepreneurial venture within a larger organization that was much more stable. And oh my goodness, the mission that we were working on through the cystic fibrosis and the HCV work, which were really game changers and novel medicines that were as near to cures as you could get. There was nothing in the market for that. And at first, when I took the job, I was like, I feel like I'm kind of selling out and I'm walking away from nonprofit and I'm doing this for the responsibility. What was beautiful is that biotech at Vertex taught me you can find that cross section of things that still inspire you and make you feel like you're having an impact that is truly transformational and important and still be able to pay your bills and grow and develop in the process. And so I worked there for four years and I worked my way up through the HR department, loved it, worked with Lisa Kelly Croswell, who's now over at BNC. And she just was so incredible with building an incredible culture over there and started really, I would say, coalescing the business administration team because there was about 75 of us at that point. And then I ended up supporting Jeff Lydon. Now there's three CEOs there <laughs> when I was there over four years. So it started Josh Boger, the founder. He retired the year I got there. Matt Emmons uh, was there for a couple of years to help transition us to his major cultural change. And then Jeff came in, who was on the board, and I ended up supporting him for a number of months before they moved down. And this is when they were still in Cambridge. This is a long time ago. Then they went down to the seaport and they were like, come on down with us. And I was like, I'm not going to the city. It's too much. I have two toddlers. I can't. Right. And they tried to get me to go down there and I just couldn't. So I ended up departing, not because I actually wanted to, but because I kind of had to with where I was in my life. And I said, I need to stay close to home. And I got introduced to working with a true startup founder at a private organization called Forma Therapeutics over in Watertown. And this is before anybody even knew where Watertown was. And I was like, wow, there's biotech in Watertown? What is going on? It's very different today, obviously. Was there for six years. And that's where I learned a lot of how to interact and partner very closely from both a strategic and an operational capacity with not only a founder CEO, but with the broader leadership team and how everything needs to come together in milestone cultural and shifts within growth that are happening when you're moving from a discovery research into a development commercialization organization. And wow, I mean, can't lie, I burned out twice while I was there, but learned so much in the process and just worked with such incredible people. And then I was trying to actually leave biotech after uh, the CEO, um, he departed because they were bringing in a more seasoned CEO to bring the commercial side uh, to market. And so I decided to depart because I didn't want to go IPO. I knew I'd, I don't work. I don't thrive in those particular growth environments. I like private startup, fast survival, you know, scaling mode. 
And so I took a sabbatical for four months and I said, I need to figure out who I am and what I'm going to do next. And I said, I think I need to step away from biotech. It's such an industry of urgency and intensity and, and heart, really. A lot of care goes into it. And that can get exhausting if you're committed as hard as I was for so many years. And so I just looked at other opportunities and tried to reconnect with family and friends. I'm not going to lie, it was one of the most beautiful times of my life. I believe in sabbaticals, and I think everybody should take them, and we should make it a societal norm. And then once you realize you're in biotech, you you never get out of biotech. You think you can get out of biotech, but they just pull you right back in because of your network and the people you know, and you start falling in love with all of that and being around brilliant people and innovative science and just incredible stuff that's happening. So I got recruited by Lab Central, Johannes Freuhoff in particular. So Johannes, he founded Lab Central Biolabs and is also a partner over at Mission Biocapital. So he had quite the cross-section of life responsibilities and they needed somebody to come in and wrangle him because it was just too much growing too quickly. And they said, oh, if you can handle Steve, because Steve was very busy all over the place too. They're like, then we think that you could basically wrangle Johannes. And so I came in and I worked with Johannes and I said, look, I'm going to be here for maybe like one to two years. I'll get you in place. But I know that I need to go off and do something on my own. And so that's what I did. I got him together from a business administration standpoint, functioned kind of as a chief of staff level with you know cross-functional efforts, projects, and administration. And then I was going to go and do consulting full time. Again, this kind of plug and play bridge to scale operational model, manager of the miscellaneous with startups, helping them with their GNA build outs very early on in a fractional capacity and had the full support of Johannes. He was quite excited about it. And one week before I was supposed to fully 100% leave Lab Central, I was going to come back and still consult with them, but just as my own consulting company. My son got diagnosed with T1 diabetes. And so this is where the the universe places (laughs) obstacles. And I want to say an obstacle because I think that every challenge has a gift and a learning in it. But I will say two years of planning, I had an existential crisis. And I said, oh, my goodness, when you have a chronically ill child, you need to think about other priorities such as healthcare and actual stable work environment for an extended period of time. And so I made the decision to stay with Lab Central and do my consulting, but still within Lab Central in a different role uh, than what I was in. And so that's where I am now. I'm the director of partnerships and programming, where I create learning and development executive level programming specific for startup entrepreneurs. I say I love first time founders in particular to help them build their biotech business not just the science. The business sometimes gets a little lost in the mix. So sorry, that was such a long story, but it kind of does all come together. (laughs) And here I am. So I'm working consulting part-time still, and I'm working at Lab Central for the majority of my time during the week in that capacity. Amazing story. (laughs) Really interesting. Also, Allison, are you and Lynn the same person? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say, I mean... I don't find that to be a long story. I was fascinated because so many things you said really resonated with me. And I think one thing, some of the people who listen to this podcast, we hope, we think, are people who are maybe feeling out biotech, but maybe they're a little bit lost as well. That whole section about your 20s, really, I feel that really deeply. I think when you have a lot of interest, I also wanted to be an astronaut at one point, wanted to be a lawyer, wanted to be this. A lot of interest, no specialization. And I think that can be really hard in your 20s when your friends becoming like the nurse they had always dreamed they would be or, you know, the teacher that was always like what they wanted or the scientist. And you're kind of sitting there going, okay, all of that sounds great. And where do I go? And I love that you were able to take some time. The volunteer part, I think, is really interesting because all of that definitely leads into being really good at operations and strategy. I'm sure you were exposed to so many moving pieces. And in a volunteer organization, for the most part, you're doing whatever has to get done. There is no like, this is mine and this is that. It's also in a resource-restricted environment, which is very helpful when you're working in survival startup mode. Yeah. So you actually you actually pick up, like you said, so many transferable skills and mindsets of resourcefulness and 
hyper growth and lots of moving parts and also dealing with, I would say, very smart people, especially if you're dealing with a nonprofit board that all have very different views of how the business could and should be run. So, so many items there that that were wonderful. I'm not going to lie. I had a couple of really terrible business experiences too, but I call them polarity comparators. It's the gathering of all the experiences throughout your life, both good and bad, so that you can get really clear on your criteria of where you belong and where you're happy spaces. And I usually say when, you know, people ask me, well, what advice would you give to, uh, you know, people who are graduating college? And I say straight up, don't learn what you love to do, learn what you hate to do, because that'll steer you in a much clearer direction. That is good advice. Fantastic advice. All right. So anyone listening to this who feels like they just like don't know what they're doing and they're super lost, don't worry. It'll all come together. Just keep going. Yeah. Keep trying a bunch of stuff. All you have is time. And when you're young, you have time and you have less responsibility. It's the time to try as much as you can out. So don't be afraid. Love that. So kind of going back to your transition from big company Vertex to small company. So you were doing an operational role in both, but how was that different? You said you burned out a couple of times. And, you know, can you just go into that a little bit? Yeah. And It's interesting because that was really a transition that taught me, again, where my happy place was. I realized uh, fairly quickly that being in a much larger, particularly publicly traded organization, while the structure was really nice when I was there and there was actually lots of opportunity and still a lot of growth and development that I, I had been able to pull from Vertex, I just realized there's still a lot of restrictions that you don't even recognize are there until you're in a smaller private entity that's in hyper growth mode in the scope of impact and ownership. And the feedback loops are so much faster with when you're getting things done. And also you start realizing you can't know everybody when you're in a 600 or a thousand person organization. And I was even working in HR. So technically I probably knew more than most people did at Vertex. But when you get to a smaller organization and I came over to Forma when it was about 50 people and we grew it up until about 125. I was able to know everybody's name. And I love that. I think relationship building is really important. And again, I think it does come down to a scope of ownership around that impact feedback loop of where can I use my talents and my experiences and my influence and my input to actually build an incredible, sustainable organization that you really believe will change the world for the better. And that's what a lot of biotech innovation is about, right? So when I got there, in typical startup fashion, they recognized that I was a manager of the miscellaneous where I could jump in in a, in a, a lot of different places and own and deliver in an executable way. And It was wonderful, but I'm also my own worst enemy where I just kept taking on more stuff, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. And so I was not only supporting the CEO, I was also jumping in and helping with HR endeavors because I had a lot of experience that I pulled over from Vertex. I happened to have kind of a background in marketing and communications. My mom ran a graphics design firm for 35 years, so it's just kind of in my blood. And so I ended up becoming the default internal communications person. And that was awesome, but also a lot of work. And then before you know it, you're running other projects. Like I was helping with like the trademarking efforts and with legal. And then I was helping to do training when we were switching over to software. And then I was redoing the onboarding process. And so I was owning all of these kinds of things, all while trying to do the day-to-day basics of just general administration of like calendar management and board meetings and these kinds of things. I think when you care as deeply as many of us do working in this industry, it's very hard to detach yourself from when you're getting too close to that edge. And this is, again, one of those pain is growth and understanding. Seeing my progress through that And seeing the patterns attached, not just for me, but for people that I've worked with, with leaders that I work with, we all have the same human condition. And those patterns play out over and over and over again, because in the end, we all just want to make a difference. And however we want to approach that may be different for each of us, but many times the outcomes are the same if we don't know how to say no or put up boundaries or what I would consider a detachment mode, which is another whole other philosophy I have around particularly founder CEOs and what I try to coach them through when I'm partnering with them. So I burned out, yeah, not once, but twice there. Again, I don't blame 
anybody at the business except myself. And it was a lesson learned, but I came out on the other side a lot wiser. And I, I helped try to bring some of that wisdom to people that I work with every day. And you can achieve without putting your own health or mental wellness at risk. It takes commitment and time and, and a self-reflectiveness that I think many of us don't take the time to do, but it's there. And so this is another thing that I try to roll into when I'm, when I'm working with founding teams and, and particularly first-time founder CEOs. Well, Lynn, I have to ask, going off of that, I think you've hit on a lot of really important things in there. And I guess my question now is you're still really busy and you're consulting and helping people grow their companies. It's still really stressful. You still have a lot going on. It's a really tight funding environment. So I'm sure that's really impacting the stress that you're exposed to from these founders and everything. What are your work-life balance tips? Do you have any? Are there any things you hold sacred where you're like, this is just a thing that has to be done for me to be able to bring my best self to work? Because that is an awful lot of stress that you're taking on. There's no such thing as work-life balance. To me, it's work-life leverage and integration, right? Where you're pulling levers here and there, and you need to understand where do I have energy to put either this day, this minute, this week. And that's the other thing, understanding what activities bring you joy versus drain you. Again, we all have to adult and there's just stuff that we have to get done. But the more you can hyper-focus on and bring into your life things that truly actually energize you, that work is different when you're engaging in it. So even if somebody has a lot of work on their plate, they're energized and engaged by it, time goes fast, right? It's different. You actually come out on the other side, not drained and kind of like pumped up around it. And so choosing and narrowing and understanding and getting closer to those sectors that really, you know, are your, what you would consider flow points, I think is the first step. And again, uh, sometimes that just comes with years and years and years of experience and mistakes. And again, experiencing burnout. I think for my own approach to self-care, I actually had a boss recently tell me, he goes, I don't think I've met anybody who is as exceptional at self-care as you, Lynn. <laughs> Again, this is one, I have a supportive spouse who is totally okay. I actually go up to Maine to a nowhere cabin for twice a year for four days by myself with no agenda, nothing to do, some reading material, and I just nap and write and roam around and go and get food if I feel like it or I don't. And I just be by myself in nature. And that's all I just, I do that. I was only doing it once a year, but now I love it so much. I do it twice a year. That sounds amazing. I love that. <laughs> I'm a big believer in energy work. And so I actually studied Reiki and I try to integrate that into my life where again, energy out is energy in. And with, you know, the study of science around, you know, quantum realms and quantum field and subtle energies and all these other kinds of things, I'm, I'm very interested in that kind of field of study. And so I, I do do a lot of energy work and work with practitioners and work on myself. And I try, I'm trying to get better at meditation. And again, meditation doesn't have to be like 20 minutes a day. I mean, that's really great if you can. It can literally be a minute of, of like minor breathing in your car before you're going into a meeting. And that's literally what I do when I'm sitting in my car before I get into work. I park and I just literally sit there for about five minutes and I just try to do some breathing exercises. And I do a lot of reading. I love learning and education and just keeping my brain active. And that's actually might sound exhausting, but for me, it's energizing. And so I try to mix all of these in. You know, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I'm not going to lie. I'm in a very busy period right now in Q3, Q4 with a lot of my work. And I know it's, you know, it's, it's here. And so I'll take, you know, some time for myself during the holidays. And there's a cadence. You need to figure out your cadence of self. And a lot of us are not very good at that. I absolutely love the no work-life balance thing and the levers. And that really resonates because it's so true. Sometimes you got to know which one to pull, which one you can move. And I've never heard it described that way, but I'm going to adopt it if you don't mind, because I think that is the best way to frame that. So you talked about coaching some of the CEOs and the founders that you work with through some of these things. What does that process look like? Yeah, I want to clarify also that I think coaching doesn't have to be an explicit interaction as being named as coaching. Again, my background is executive administration, executive operations, business administration operations. And to me, that is actually an inherent part of the partnership that comes together when you have somebody like that that is working with a founder or a startup CEO. 
when you care deeply about the success of another, you want the best for them and the best for what their dreams are. And so that naturally is going to bring out conversations that both champion and challenge when they need it the most. And so while I think now I'm a little bit more formalized in the coaching realm, I would say that it's been a natural part of just how I've partnered from, again, an operational partnership with the people that I've worked with and consulted with over the years. So in regards to the coaching side of things, if you go to like an actual hire an executive coach, they'll come in, they have these like frameworks and these like ways that they approach and have conversations and they send you off with projects and things. And that's not how I approach it. I look at it as a very natural in the moment discussion that is very practical. And when things are going awry or going well within a business, I will sit and I will make sure that I'm very explicit with the founder and say, you know what? You are doing an amazing job and this is what you rocked this week and you are crushing it here and you are crushing it there. How can we amplify this and do this? Because let's be honest, when you're a leader, everybody's crapping all over you all the time. Everybody wants to be doing something better. Nobody's always like, man, you're rocking it. You're doing awesome. So this is another role where I think it's really important to revalidate the good work that leaders are doing when they're in the moment. And then there comes times where there's some really difficult conversations that have to happen. And the reality is, is working with leadership teams over the years, when people are in decision-making and resource-holding positions, people don't feel like they always can come and be, I would say, fully challenging to maybe their boss because there's risk involved, right? When you're in a role that is not a resource-holding or official decision-making position, at, such as an executive administrator or a chief of staff or what I would consider the conductor of the business, you have that ability to observe and communicate in a much more honest way without fear. And again, I'm not saying this happens, but this is the natural psychological hold up of, of most humans if you need to have a very difficult conversation with somebody. And if you root these conversations, particularly the really difficult ones with uh, that you have to have with a CEO in particular, if you root it in deep care and you link it back to how this is going to affect their dream and their business, it actually can be quite a powerful discussion that yields positive results. And so that's the way I look at it. It's more of a discussion on literally a minute-to-minute basis in both championing and challenging leaders to be their best and not make it so formalized. That being said, I do make it my business to have a quarterly three-hour dinner offsite with the leaders that I partner with. And I use the stop-start-continue model. And the first time I used this with my boss, he didn't know what to make of it. <laughs> he was like, who are you? And what are you doing with me here? I literally had a full-on agenda and I gave him feedback on what he should start doing, what he should stop doing, and what we needed to continue and amplify for him or develop. And I linked it all back to how it was affecting the business, both in positive or negative ways. And again, he was a bit confused the first time, but once we got into the cadence, he really appreciated it. And, and leaders I've used it with since have really appreciated it because they don't get that very explicit feedback from other team members uh, on a consistent basis. So yeah, so I feel like that's a framework that I would, I would use. That's my only official framework that I use, but everything else is just, I would say, conversations. Yeah, that's a great framework. I do that on a weekly basis in a small way. It's sort of a, a mini one and then a quarterly big one. Yeah. Because it's so good to reflect on the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? It's what you need to really bring to the table for your company. Yeah, exactly. And we're all human, making mistakes, learning, growing. And especially for first-time founders, they've never been through it before. They're learning on the job. They're green. So everybody can benefit from feedback and knowing better, doing better, being better. That's what I say. Know better, do better, be better. Lynn, one of the reasons I just adore chatting with you is you have such a great way with words. First of all, manager of the miscellaneous is an excellent title. You should trademark that. That is going to get stolen by so many companies now who need a person who can do everything. But you also use Stratactical, and I love that. It really speaks to my operations soul. So can you tell everyone a little bit about Stratactical and the Stratactical framework and just all the good stuff about it? Yes, this is literally my favorite word. And when I use it with leaders, they all bust out in a smile because they actually understand what I'm talking about, even though I don't have to describe what it actually is. But for those who maybe are not in the thick of it and would need a little bit more explanation, 
there's only really two, what I would see as two very unique roles in a company that need to bridge understanding strategy and vision of leadership and being able to translate that and execute into operational frameworks of accountability to drive and support that strategy. And the first one is, I would say, HR business partners. They sit at the cross-section of the leadership team and helping with people strategy and finding the right people with the right resources, with the right talents at the right time. And you need to understand strategy, both short-term and long-term, in order to do that. And they're generalists. They work across all pillars of HR because HR is not just talent acquisition. It is a whole bunch of other things. And I try to educate leaders around that as well when we start getting into scaling and what functions need to start focusing in on. So, and then the other one I would say is this executive administration position. And again, there's different levels. The the traditional stigmatized version has been, I would say, titled executive assistant. And it has been traditionally looked at as very directive. So I tell you what to do and you do calendaring and travel and expense management. That's literally the scope of what I would say most leaders when I ask them, what do you think this role should or could be doing? That's literally what they tell me. Then I open up their eyes and say, oh boy, you are leaving so much on the table here. And so we need to look at this more as a business function and a strategic partner within the leadership team rather than just a directive doer. And so the term stratactical is this role is the second role in the company that gets deeply ingrained in both the CEO's vision for the company and the leadership team's need to deliver on that. And then taking that and executing again on all of the stuff that needs to get built in order to make that happen. So I love the term subtractal. It's literally my favorite word all the time. I see so many similarities. Like I said, I think you and Allison are probably the same person. So I brought Allison on. I didn't know it, but I should have titled it the manager of the miscellaneous because it really was, we were a very small company and it was so wonderful to have a partner that could execute, push back, coach, manage, like all of the things. And I think that a visionary CEO or a visionary founder who they are so committed to the science, their passion, what they're doing, they really need that counterpart. They really need somebody in that role. Yeah. Yeah. I I would love to take that one step further, particularly working in biotech and life sciences. I really like the niche of plugging and playing this particular, we call it the manager of the miscellaneous. I'm super passionate about business administration as an actual function and labeling the titles as other functions. So when I say manager of the miscellaneous, I would actually translate that into director of business administration as an actual functional title um, and not because chief of staff to me, executive assistant, these are nebulous cliff titles that are very difficult to translate into other realms and understanding and scope of responsibilities. So I think what ends up happening is that in life science in particular, we have a lot of academic spinouts and we have people and visionary founders who are so obsessed and excited about their science. Science, 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 right? What they don't realize is that you're not building science. You're building a business. And so you need somebody that can function in this type of role, again, to understand your dream and your science, but build the frameworks to help make it sustainable and scalable so that we can actually translate that vision and that idea and that awesome innovative science from a concept and a story to like real patience. And that's a huge gap in between that I think gets addressed way too late. And interestingly enough, there was an article that came out recently. I can't remember if it was on HBR or Forbes. And they interviewed a ton of entrepreneurs who had failed at a number of businesses. And when they said, what was it that you believe was the theme that made you fail on those specific companies? And every single one of them says, it wasn't that we didn't find product market fit. It wasn't that we didn't have a good product. It wasn't that we didn't have a good team. We didn't know how to operationally scale at the right time with the right people and the right resourcing. And so that's what this kind of role would do for you when you plug and play it. Yeah, I think it's really, really critical to understand that when you get into industry, 
there's more than just the science and there's more than just going out and pitching your science and fundraising. You need to deliver when you get that money. And how are you going to do that so it actually, you know, makes it through all those those kind of milestone stages? They're super critical. That's spot on. Yeah, I'm interested. What else do you see as like the other critical roles and responsibilities that get overlooked by some of these founders and first-time CEOs? I have such a strong philosophy around this. And again, this is rooted in the fact that science many times, while it is the product of the company, it's not the whole company. Yet all ideas, resourcing, decision-making, accountability gets routed into that realm. I'm not saying that that's not required or necessary, but it's so hyper-focused that there's blind sides to everything else. So there's three positions that I think one are either completely ignored or hired way too late and not resourced for early enough in a startup environment. The first one being, we've talked about this, HR and people strategy. And again, when I talk to leaders and I say, they come to me and they say, I need to hire an HR person. And I was like, okay, do you need somebody to help with recruiting? Is that what you're asking me? And they're like, yeah, yeah, I need HR. And I'm like, that's not HR. <laughs> that's talent acquisition. That is a subpillar of HR. HR is benefits management, payroll, compensation philosophy, employee engagement, employee relations, performance management, career ladders and matrices, learning and development. Like there's a whole bunch of other stuff here that like we're not talking about. So no, no, you need a recruiter. And that's not people strategy when you get to a certain size. So I, I talk very early and, and explicitly about that particular function of managing people in your organization and how to step stage that appropriately. And I'm very clear of how I think that works in its best format, which first of all, usually I suggest from the zero to 12 person range, hire a fractional HR person that's from a firm outside. And again, it has to be a generalist. They can help with recruiting, but they're going to also help with your policies and benefits and, and all these other kinds of things. From 12 to maybe like 25 or, no, maybe like 12 to 40, that range, I say you bring in HR in-house, senior manager level, so that they can, again, be the doer and start managing any of the higher level external fractional HR that you're going to need for stuff that's very expensive that you can't bring in, but you need the doers on the ground to help nurture and start nurturing culture and doing these other kinds of, again, accountability structures and, and things along those lines. And then I would say between like 50 to 100 people, you should be bringing in a director or a senior director. This is the generalist that will start bridging the strategy and the actual people strategy and bringing those together and managing a full function team. 100 plus is when you start looking at a CHRO or a VP of HR. You do not need that until that very, because then you're dealing with board and equity. And I mean, you're dealing with that earlier, but just not in the complicated natures of, of when you're growing, right? So that HR is not Number one, I say always misunderstood, misallocated for, and brought in way too late. Second one would be executive administration or business administration. Again, you can hire a fractional person to start off, but I really believe in having a right-hand person that understands the rhythm of business or the cadence of business to support the strategic decision-making throughout the year and keeping the leadership team accountable to what they need to be delivering on both for themselves and for the rest of the organization. So, and there's an art to that. There's a lot of frameworks, learning how to appropriately set corporate OKRs, how to cascade those, building out all the strategy offsites and ensuring that they're focusing on the right things, really running tight weekly ELT meetings so they don't turn into inform meetings or work stream meetings. They really should be decision-making meetings. That's what they're supposed to be, but that's not what you usually see when you first get into startup environments. The third role and there's still there's still some pushback on this one. But what it what what do you think is actually the number one complaint when you send out an employee uh, survey for an employee engagement survey that people always say this is what's wrong with this company? Communication. Communication. <laughs> Communication. Okay. Communication is one of the most critical pieces of growing a thriving, resilient, and successful company. And yet it is one of the latest functions that you never even think about. Because again, internal communications is very different from external. When people think about communications, they think, oh, press releases and interviewing and working with me on my pitch deck and these very externally focused. Your company will implode from the inside out. 
not from the outside in. And most of the time that comes down to absolutely poor communications. And if you don't have frameworks with the leadership consistently and very clearly communicating the expectations, both behaviorally and strategically and, and, you know, tactically to the broader organization, you are really putting your company at risk for that scaling and sustainability aspect that we talked about a few minutes earlier. And like I said, there are absolute frameworks that need to be implemented and no leadership team member is going to own that. So who really owns that? Sometimes you'll see it sometimes in a COO, but not usually. Again, it's a little bit too tactical and they want to play more up here. So you need this bridge in between. And so those are the three roles. HR people strategy, how it gets appropriately integrated and step staged, executive administration or business administration as a function, not as a role, and internal communications. And you can bridge that across an administrator if you find somebody that has that skill set, at least for the short term. But you really want to try to find somebody that excels at internal communications. It will make 80% of problems in companies would go away if, if we focused in on internal communication. I know that. Not scientifically, anecdotally, obviously. We ask so many people on this podcast, how do you guys handle communications? And is that a pain point for you? And everyone's just like head in their hands like, yes. And no one has an answer. But Lynn, you have an answer. (laughs) I have a framework too. I can offer a framework that I came up with at a company that was really struggling. And I share this out with everybody because I think it's a really easy thing to remember. And it can be easily pulled into every aspect of deliverables within the business. And I did post it on LinkedIn a while. So people can download it if they want to. I call it the P5 Flex Framework. That's what I titled it. It's not trademarked, but that's what I'm calling it right now. And I created this triangle. And again, I was talking about how most leaders come in and they hyper-focus only on the science and they forget about all the other parts of the actual business building that needs to be resourced or focused on strategically planned for. And so I created this triangle and on the base of it is purpose. That's really your vision and your your long-term, like, we will walk through the fire for this. And these are the values that we hold highest that we are going to hold ourselves accountable to. So when times get hard, we make the decisions on these things. So purpose is actually the foundation framework. In the middle, I have product, which is really whether it's a diagnostic, a medicine, other platforms of therapeutics, or however you want, whatever you're focusing in on in life sciences. On the other side, we have process. So again, infrastructure, accountability, frameworks, systems, platforms, software, these kinds of things that you just need to adult as a business, right? But in the middle, you need people to pull those two together. If you have one without the other and you don't have the people actually working across both of those, everything else falls apart. Then up at the top, I have what's called progress. And progress to me is how are we going to fund or again, plan for making all of this stuff on the bottom actually come to reality and sustain it so that we can achieve our vision and purpose that's at the foundation right there. And so interestingly enough, when you use this model, you can take this and plug it into your OKR process and you actually break out OKRs into these five different sections because most OKRs that I see when I come in and partner with organizations, they only have research and development and funding. Those are literally the three bullet points they have on their their corporate goals that they're having everybody follow. And I'm like, well, what about the people? And what about the actual operational infrastructure? We need to have focus on some of this as well. You can skew some of the weighting over to R&D and the assets and those kinds of things, totally fine, but you cannot ignore. And so this will force you to say, well, have we hit all of these five Ps? The second one is when you're doing internal communications through, say, an all-team meeting. You can actually use this as a framework of what you should be focusing in on every single time you need to report back out, say, after a board meeting to the rest of the organization. You can start off with your purpose and, again, reinvigorate everybody of, like, this is why we do what we do. Then you go into, here's all the new people that just got hired and here's the roles that we need to be filling. And then you can go into, here's an update on our pipeline, the product. We need to figure that out. And this is where we're struggling. This is where we're focusing. These are the strategic pivots. And then you have process. These are all the new things that we're rolling out cross-functionally across the company. Oh, we're updating our recruitment platform. Oh, we're starting with G Suite instead of Microsoft. Or here's a new benchling thing we're doing. And then again, you can also move into the progress of this is our longer-term vision of where we are with the resourcing we have and our plans in order to make this, again, sustainable and and long-term. 
And so it's very easy because then nobody's scrambling. <laughs> and you're like, what are we going to talk about for this all-team meeting? Uh, you know, And it gives you that. And then any decisions you make in the organization, you can actually put it up against any of those and say, there's specific questions you can ask at each of those P sections to say, is this decision that we are about to make that's very critical or very important, does it touch upon what we believe in each of these philosophies of these different five triangles here? And so I find it to be a very helpful framework to keep people on point and accountable to all parts of the business that need to be looked at, not just the science. That sounds like such a good framework. I could talk about all of this stuff for hours. So I think we're gonna have to do a round two at some point. Oh, I'm into round two because I have lots of other stuff to talk about too. Awesome. Lynn, where do you see yourself in the next phase of your career? Again, as I described earlier, I've been on this weird <laughs> lattice journey. And so when people ask me, oh, where do you see yourself in five years? Or, you know, again, what is your next phase? It's very hard for me to say, oh yeah, this is like where I think I'm going. One, the older I get, the more I trust in the universe and just it's going to take me where I am supposed to go. Even if I'm kicking and screaming, it's I know it's conspiring for me. And I've had too many experiences over, again, a 25-year period that have shown me this to be true. So I trust that when the time is right, opportunities will present themselves in a flow of, come this way, Lynn, this is your next step. I also say I pay very close attention to what kind of impact I'm having and am I happy? Those are the only two things I actually ask myself with whatever I'm doing in any part of my life. And if any of those start to wane significantly, I know I have to do some reassessment and figure out how do I get that either back or where do I pivot in order to recalibrate those two things. So for me, it's not really about, again, step stage, like, oh, I'm planning, which is so ironic because I plan for everybody else, but I'm just kind of trusting in the flow for myself. I really just kind of pay attention to my emotional feelings and sense of impact. And as long as I'm getting that from where I am, I'm good. That's pretty much how I see it. I think those are like perfect calibration questions that everyone should be asking themselves. I'm thinking here thinking like, when's the last time I actually sat down and like ran through those questions? And I think that is, you are just a wealth of good frameworks. This is a great episode. <laughs> I love frameworks. It makes life so much simpler, right? But they have to be simple frameworks. And most of my frameworks are all rooted, honestly, in the human condition. The human condition doesn't change. We all just want to make a difference. We all want to belong. We all want to know that we can share our uniqueness and that we're having an impact somewhere. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And anything that stems from that results in, again, either positive or negative behavioral reactions within our life. If you keep it simple, again, there's another framework when I am helping to build out kind of onboarding frameworks or people strategy frameworks. If you can focus in on the concepts of belong, behave, and believe, and you could fill in each of those within within the context of your business, it's actually quite simple to help bring people along with you if you can commit and really see everything in those three buckets. But you need to care. You just, you need to care as well. And I think there's a lot of care out there in the biotech industry, which is, again, it's very hard. <laughs> you can try to run, but you just can't hide. You always get pulled back in. You always do. Once you're in, you're in biotech. You don't leave. I am so interested and excited to hear your answer to my favorite question, which is, what is your favorite book or what is a book that you think everybody should read? Maybe it's not your favorite, but what is your book recommendation? First of all, I'm a, what do you call a bibliophile? I read literally like six books at a time and I actually keep a list and I've read hundreds of books. And most of them are almost all exclusively nonfiction, but they range from philosophy to spirituality to a business to history to, again, self-help or business frameworks and structures, these kinds of things. And I would say the most influential book that I've read in my life that, that actually I went and got a degree in after I read it was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And I think, again, this comes back to the human condition and that a lot of the crisis or problems or tensions or conflicts within our world and within any relationship we have comes down to our own sense of inner meaning and purpose. And I, I suggest this as a book to read for leaders because many leaders, they have to go through survival mode and identity uh, understanding and self-reflection in the worst of times, there will be absolute suffering 
I can guarantee it when you are trying to keep something alive from with a dream and very little money to do so in the beginning stages, right? And that's when you find out who you really are. It's not in the happy times. It's not in the easy times. It's not in the good times. It's in the really, really struggling hard times. And when you know who you are and your sense of purpose and meaning, that is what will pull you through the fire and get you to the other side. And not only pull you through the fire, but help pull others with you. And it builds a resiliency. Also understanding that there truly is always growth, always gifts, and even the most tragic of circumstances is something that I have garnered, not only from personal experience, but the philosophy of Viktor Frankl. He has a framework that's for clinicians in the psychology and psychotherapy realm called logotherapy. I went and got a degree in it for more of a philosophical integration within the business world. And so you can see that on my LinkedIn. It's I call it psychological and existential analysis is really what it is. So man search for meeting by Viktor Frankl. Quick, easy read, very powerful, translates to every part of your life. And I I think that it's a real, real game changer for those that are willing to commit the time to it. Sounds fascinating. Thank you so much, Lynn. This was so fun. We are linking your LinkedIn into the show notes. As I mentioned, is there any other way people should get in touch with you? Yeah, I think LinkedIn is definitely probably number one for me. I'm on there all the time. I really enjoy, again, seeing all the activity that's going on, uh, not only within the life science industry, but, you know, broader beyond that. And then also I have a website called Executive Management Partners. The shortened URL version is ExecNPC, which stands for Executive Management Partners Consulting. So EXECNPC.com. Hey, great. We'll put that in the show notes too. Yeah. This was so fun. Thank you so much for being on our show. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. I'm super humbled too, because again, after listening to all the previous participants of your biotech podcast, I'm really, there's big shoes to fill there. So again, grateful for the opportunity. And I do hope we get to continue the conversation maybe in a session too, because I think there's still so much more to talk about in regards to explicitly culture building, which is the other realm of my consulting that I focus in on with new models and frameworks, which you guys love frameworks. So we can look into that too. We do. Love a good framework. Thanks again for the opportunity. Building Biotechs is brought to you by Recordomics Consulting. To find out more about Recordomics Consulting and how our fractional talent management consulting services are helping biotech and life sciences companies grow more efficiently and retain employees, visit www.recordomics.com. And then make sure to search for Building Biotechs, a podcast by Recordomics in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Recordomics Consulting, thanks for listening.